In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And amen. Please be seated. It is the seventh Sunday of Easter and the first Sunday after Ascension, so happy Easter to everyone. It is also Memorial Day weekend, so to those of you who have served, thank you for your service. For those of you who have lost comrades, friends, and family, uh, may this be a, a blessed time for you of remembrance as for all of us. If we hit the button on the way back machine and go all the way back to last week, you will recall that we listened in to Jesus' answer to Judas, not Iscariot, his question about, well, what about everybody else? You recall Jesus' answer was, love me, the real me, and then the Father and I will dwell in you by the Holy Spirit and we will let the world know the truth by your peace and by your joy. Well, this week we jump from chapter 14 to chapter 17 of John's Gospel to where Jesus raises the stakes answering the same question. But now he's no longer merely instructing or teaching He's taking things to another level, to a higher court. More is needed, you see, than our resolve to love. Jesus invokes a higher power. He's praying. And he's praying for a more powerful apologetic. He's praying that God the Father give the world a more persuasive reason to believe than our peace and our joy. Listen to him pray. John chapter 17, verse 23. That they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That they may be completely one. Jesus' followers' oneness will open a window for the world onto the very oneness within the Godhead. More on that on Trinity Sunday in two weeks. But for now, I want to draw three lessons from his prayer. Uh, one, we can pray as Jesus prayed. Two, we can be a part of his answer by being one with each other. And we can, as God permits, come to God's table. So prayer, oneness, the table, P-O-T or pot, if that helps. We can, in the first place, pray as Jesus prayed and as he prays. You remember back in the day, there was the WWJD movement, what would Jesus do? Well, what does Jesus do? Well, he does three things, and they wind up being, um, they wind up being T-A-P, tap. He teaches, he acts, and he prays. He teaches how to live. Sermon on the Mount, his parables, his new commandment. He acts, he mounts a cruel cross 
to pay the penalty for our sins. He takes into his own being all the meanness, all the cruelty, all of your pettiness and mine, all of our selfishness, and he prays. He teaches, he acts, he prays. All over the place in the Gospels, he's seeking out a solitary place to go commune in prayer with his heavenly Father. On the night of his betrayal and arrest, he tells Peter, I'm going to be praying for you through your betrayal of me, that the Lord will sustain you. And he prays here in John chapter 17. He prays that we may know the Father, verse 2. He prays that we may be protected, verse 11. He prays that we may know joy, verse 13. He prays that we may be sanctified in God's truth, verse 17. And he prays in the whole paragraph read to us, that we may be made one. And then he goes on to pray from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it's the sins of all of us, including the disciples, that put him there. And he prays, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he prays for us still, as Hebrews 7.25 puts it. He, Jesus, is also able to save forever those who draw near to God since he always lives, since Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. You and I don't make it through a day without a friend in a high place urging his father to act on our behalf. From getting up in the morning to getting home on I-4, to not throwing your shoe through the flat screen TV on the wall, to putting your head on the pillow at night, to holding back through the night what the psalmist calls the terrors of the night. Through it all, Jesus is praying for you because he loves you. And because he promises to get you all the way home. And so Jesus teaches, he acts, he prays. And likewise, his servant Paul. Paul teaches, Paul acts, and Paul prays. Paul teaches the truth of Christ, oh, say in his letters to the Romans and the Galatians. He acts by embodying it in the collection that he takes up from, for the Jerusalem Christians in the third missionary journey throughout the Gentile churches. And then because it's not enough to teach and it's not enough to act, he prays. In fact, when he writes to the Ephesians, he writes six chapters and the first three chapters are one long extended prayer. He prays that we may know the hope of our calling. For as Christ who has brought us from death to life and brought us from loneliness and emptiness into fellowship with one another, we become God's own place of dwelling. And that happens only when beyond the teaching and beyond the acting, beyond the embodiment, 
there is the praying. Like his master Jesus, Paul teaches, he embodies, and he prays. And so, the most important thing that you and I can be doing in our day is to pray as his priests for the ailments of the world. And so, just because there are a couple that are on everybody's mind, let me pray for a couple of those. Father, we pray for healing for communities upended by gun violence. Our hearts are so heavy for people in Sandy Hook, for people affected by Orlando's pulse, for Parkland's Stoneman Douglas High School, Charleston's Mother Emanuel Church, Buffalo's Topps Friendly Market, Uvalde's Rob Elementary. Our hearts are so heavy. We pray consolation and hope for families in grief. We pray peace for children traumatized and scared. We thank you nonetheless for the images of united worship that have come from each place. We pray oneness of mind for legislators whose job is to curb evil in our midst. And we pray for courage of heart for first responders called to protect innocent life. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Father, we pray oneness between Russians and Ukrainians, where so many people lift up the name of Jesus. We pray for oneness, not on a dictator's terms, nor a false teacher's vision of Russia world. We pray for refugees. We pray protection for citizens under attack. We pray for churches in those countries split over loyalty to one side or the other. We pray for peace. We pray for justice. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If time permitted, we could pray for many more things here today, but I'm only supposed to be up here for a limited amount of time. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done the most important thing that you could be doing on earth. One of the most important. The other is being a part of the answer. My friend Joel Hunter said, says, you know, when the Lord saved you, the easiest thing that he could have done would have been to kill you and take you to heaven, taking you to heaven. But for some reason, he's left you and me here. Maybe, just maybe, his, his intention is to bring a little bit of the will of God from heaven to earth and bring a little bit of heaven right to here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Maybe you and I are supposed to be a part of that. And so that takes us to the second of our POTs, oneness. We can be a part of the answer to Jesus's prayer by our own oneness. The most persuasive case for the truth of the gospel I submit is its power to make people into lovers of God and of one another. Think about the people in Acts 16 whom God is calling through Paul to become church. 
Lydia, Philippi's female merchant of purple finery, rescued from the emptiness of shallow materialism. Think about Philippi's slave girl, delivered from the darkness of a divining spirit and exploitation by her cynical owners. Think about Philippi's Roman jailer, transferred from one kingdom to God's kingdom when he's baptized at Paul's miraculous release. Praise be, all of them are included when later Paul writes to the Philippian church and calls them partners and saints. Jesus, Paul teaches about a Jesus who though in the very form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be clutched, held on to, but who emptied himself in humble servitude as one of us who died a criminal's death for our sins and was exalted to receive the name above all names, Lord of all. That's what he writes to the Philippians. And the Philippians' lives together, living together in humility and mutual deference and caring about one another's needs rather than their own. That is the strongest argument for the truth of who Jesus actually is. Their lives together. The best proof there is of that portrait of Jesus. So, my own story. I know that my parents loved me. And I know everybody cannot say that that is true for them. Still, everything about my life seemed to be a test. You know, was I smart enough? Was I good enough? Was I cool enough? It, but then in college, I met people who marched to the beat of a different drummer. Now, to be sure, the Christians I met in college pointed to a Jesus who held in himself all the wisdom in, on the earth and beyond. They pointed to a Jesus who was himself perfect goodness and had taken my goodness deficit to the cross. And they pointed to a Jesus who turned the world's valuation of coolness on its head. But most of all, most of all, they pointed to a Jesus who loved me. And they did so, most of all, simply by loving me. As they surrounded me and made me a part of, my community, of their community, they taught me to love songs and styles I hadn't previously cared for. They taught me to love a book that not infrequently stepped on my toes and still does. They taught me that getting my own needs met wasn't life's first priority. They taught me I was going to live even if I didn't get an A in every course. They taught me to confess. They taught me that it was okay to confess when I messed up. They taught me I didn't have to be cool to be loved. And boy, was that good news. They did all this simply by embracing me, the real me, not the image I projected, not me, the test taker. They did it by making it safe to let them in and to let their Jesus do his meddling. You all are a lot like those folks I met in college. One day, I was having a 
casual conversation with a congregant who, whose identity will be protected. And, and I, I just mentioned something about how, how wonderful it is to come into this place that, that um, just invites worship. And she said, I hate this place. The architecture feels creepy to me. I associate it with the dead religion that I grew up with. The classical music feels stuffy, pretentious, and is frankly boring. The smell of the incense in the walls irritates my nostrils and has vague but uncomfortable associations. And so I said, well, why then are you here? And she said, because I've never in my whole life been loved the way I am loved by the people here. I'm accepted for who I am, warts and all. If these people's Jesus is like that, then I want their Jesus. That's a lot to live up to, but it's what I've experienced among you too. Thankfully, that's what Jesus prayed for, and that, I contend, is what he prays for still. Give me just a few more minutes, because i got to do number three, table. We're going to jump over to the book of Revelation. Eating and drinking from the table of the Lord is the clearest forecast imaginable of the truth that love and oneness, not hate and division, win. Notice Revelation chapter 2 verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. The city of God that is to come is a place where the tree of life that was denied us in the garden after the fall is ours. In that city, we will be allowed to eat, to feast at this table. We get a foretaste of the fruit of the healing of the nations, of the healing of the wounds in your family. Healing of the wounds that are on display in schools and marketplaces where death intrudes. At this table, reconciled to him and to one another, we consume hope and we become what we eat. We become the hope of the world. At this table, we say, it all does not end. We do not end in cataclysm, in dissolution, in decay, in despair, in destruction, in eternal separation, in loneliness that is forever. And then towards the end of today's passage in verse 17, John gives the the final imperatives given to people. The last time we are told to do anything. The Bible's final exhortations and invitations are these. The spirit and the bride say, come. 
and let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty come. And let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. Fittingly, as I once heard theologian Leonard Sweet observe, the Bible begins in the, in the second account of creation in Genesis 2. The Bible begins by giving us its first imperative there, eat. And the Bible ends by telling us to drink. Revelation 22, verse 17. The Bible is a book of life because it is God who gives life and health and well-being. As my friend Joe Creech likes to observe, other people drink to forget. We drink to remember. We drink to remember we've not been forgotten. And that is the Bible's last word. Come, eat. Come, drink. Amen.